So one of the teachings that is unique to the Buddha is the the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. There's many, many teachings that he offers that are not at all unique to the Buddha or to Buddhism. And certainly the teachings of ethics and the teachings of compassion are pretty universal amongst most thoughtful disciplines. And, you know, the whole quality of, of caring and kindness is not limited even to the human realm. And I love stories about creatures or across species or, you know, things like that. That just, uh, you know, taking care of each other. I just, I love them. I can hear them forever. I never get tired of them. And uh, I remember the His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, talking about compassion. And his sense was that it was um, breast milk. It was a, the mammalian ability to be able to nurse the young, which where he thought compassion arose from the warmth and the holding and the feeding of a, of a, of a little one. And um, certainly most mammals that I have ever seen nursing, there's tremendous tenderness and caring. And, you know, with a cat, with a litter of kittens or a dog, with a litter of pups, usually they're totally blissed out when the when the little ones are, are, are nursing. You know, it's just, they're just so happy. And then somebody tagged me in a little picture that had, I don't know what kind of a little creature it was, a groundhog? I don't know what it was. But it was this little creature holding up a tiny little baby with this expression on its face. It's like, you know, this is my baby. <laughs> it's my baby. <laughs> And, you know, just this, the vulnerability, the tenderness, the protection, the pride, you know, just very sweet. So there's many things that are very universal, and nobody has a monopoly on kindness. Nobody, you know. And so it's important to remember that, and it's important to cultivate. But there are some teachings that are unique to the Buddha, and the Four Noble Truths is one of them. And it's important to get a sense of, you know, what the Buddha taught if, if it feels like his teachings are supportive, you know, to get to know what they are and how they work and how they open up your own heart. And so there's four truths. There's the truth of suffering. And this is not a, you know, a sour grapes kind of wet blanket approach to life. This is a, a recognition that within our world there's suffering. And I don't know that any of us have to look a whole long distance in order to see that, you know. Our bodies, you know, need to be fed, and then they hurt if we sit too long, and they need to rest. We need to go to the toilet, and it really is uncomfortable if we cannot go to the toilet, you know. Very simple things, you know. And, you know, what happens when our bodies get older, and, you know, any kind of sicknesses that any of us have had to navigate or feelings or physical pain or, you know, the experience of loneliness or of grief, you know, losing 
someone or something that we really care about. Or navigating uncertainty, not knowing. You know, all of this stuff is, you know, what having a body is like. So there's suffering, and then there's the cause of suffering. And in the Buddha's teaching, the cause of suffering isn't the external cause. It's not the wind or the weather or the politics or being constipated. That's not the problem. The problem is wanting it to be different. You know, I remember a story somebody told me. They were in Thailand, and you know, you eat sticky rice, and your body gets bunged up. And somebody went to the abbot and said, you know, they couldn't meditate because they hadn't been able to go to the toilet. And the abbot just roared with laughter. I mean, just roared with laughter. <laughs> you know, because you know, meditation is not dependent on being able to go to the toilet regularly. It's a, the ability to be able to be with what's happening. And sometimes what's happening isn't comfortable, and that's what's happening. And that's perfectly fine to meditate with that. So there's the cause of suffering, and it's not an external cause. It's an internal cause. We want things to be different than the way they are. Or we want things to be somehow the way we want them. You know, don't want or want. That's the cause. And then the third of the noble truths is that there's a cessation of suffering. And right precisely, exactly where the suffering arises precisely where the suffering arises is exactly where you can experience the cessation of suffering. And so we have this view, because we sense that suffering is external, that when we get rid of the trigger, then we will be free of the cause. So a lot of our energy is around getting rid of what we don't want acquiring what we want. A lot, a lot of energy. Yeah? And this turns that on its head and says, actually, that's not the problem and that's not the solution. And so what that means then is, is that things can be the way they are. We don't have to get rid of them and we don't have to get what we don't have. We need to come into a different relationship with it. And there's a phenomenal degree of freedom that comes from really understanding that, not as a concept or an intellectual idea, but as a direct, you know, where the tire meets the road. You know, how do you do this in your immediate experience? You know, very powerful. And then the fourth of the noble truth is that there's a path that leads to the end of suffering, and that's the Eightfold Path. And that is the ability to bring together the conditions that are necessary in order to support all of the things that we need to do in order to be able to do this work, right? So what I wanted to speak about tonight is the first of the Eightfold Path, right view, and see if there's ways that we can talk about it in a way that makes sense, you know, for each of us, for all of us, for any of us. And, you know, I don't know, some of you I don't think have sat with me before, so I don't quite know that you know what the deal is. The deal is, is is that you're not supposed to believe a word I say. That's the deal. And what the request is, is is that you listen with your body. You listen with your feet. You listen with your belly. 
and you listen with your heart. And let your feet and your belly and your heart let you know if what you hear is in accordance with what you need to listen to or not. And if your feet or your belly or your heart say, this is not anything that I need to pay any attention to, then trust that. Just let it go. Sometimes, when we listen like that, what we experience is a resistance. And then it takes more sophistication to know if the resistance is because what is being said genuinely is not in accordance with something what we need to pay attention to, or the resistance is, is that it's actually touching something quite deep that we need to investigate further because there's something there that's not quite clear yet for us. So the resistance and the no sometimes needs further investigation to clarify what it's actually about. But you have to learn to trust it. So when we look at right view, right, sama, sama, um, but sama, the word sama means right. That's one of the translations of it. But another translation that I heard of it, which I really like, is connected or resonant view. And I like that better because right to me sounds like righteous, and I don't like that. It doesn't do the right things, you know. There's a little bit of tension when I hear right. But right view in a classical Buddhist teaching has two aspects to it. It has the mundane and the super-mundane. And right view in a mundane level in terms of, you know, right relationships in the world or resonant or connected relationships in the world is to understand the effect of generosity, to understand the effect of looking after our parents, to understand the effect of karma. Now, with some of our fabulous modernist thinkers like Stephen Batchelor, you know, He's interested in what the Buddha exclusively taught, you know, not what was there before the Buddha showed up. And so there's been this long conversation about the fact that the, the law of karma was there before the Buddha showed up. And so it's not an essential teaching of the Buddha because it already existed. And therefore, it's not unique to the Buddha. And I will take issue with that because... Just the fact that it existed before the Buddha showed up doesn't mean that it isn't relevant to understand and know what it, how it operates and how it affects us. And so the law of cause and effect or the law of karma has to do with seeing how our intention creates a result. And the law of karma on a bigger scale is the law of cause and effect. And we see that playing out everywhere. It's playing out in biology. It's playing out in physics. It's playing out in human relationships. It's playing out in government policies. It's playing out in social dynamics. It's playing out everywhere. And it's really helpful to be able to understand these things and how they work. And so... The law of karma has to do with the results that come from intention. And that itself is a whole topic that would take an hour and a half or so to unpack. And I don't want to go into it in that much depth. But I just want to say that, you know, things do not happen by coincidence. They happen because of causes. And in our own life, we make choices. And the choices that we make are motivated by intention. 
and the intentions that we have have quite a significant impact on the result. Not always. You know, you can do something that seems like it's quite wholesome and chaos can ensue. And likewise, one can make a complete mess and yet somehow there's grace and kindness and generosity that comes as a result. You know, so we're not always able to see how what we did gave rise to what happened. But certainly there's enough of being able to see how what we did gave rise to what happened that it's worth paying attention to that. You know, it's not a kind of amorphous, random world in that way. And this actually ends up having quite a significant effect in terms of the fact that because we have choice and because our intention has such an impact, then it is really important to know what is actually our intention is made of. And for most of us, this is not a weekend project because our intention is often mixed with many different threads or colors of motivations. Some of it we know, some of it we don't have a clue about. You know, and sometimes we only find out because of the effects that happened afterwards. You know, so it's like retracing the steps of the yeti. You never see the yeti; you only see the footsteps. And when you retrace the footsteps back, you come up with, oh yes, well it must have been a big thing to make such a big mess. <laughs> so the the mundane right view really appreciates the effect of generosity. Okay, it's not a trivial thing acting with generosity, and to notice that, to make much of that, to live one's life committed to that. And, you know, part of the reason why generosity is so important is because generosity is one of the things one can cultivate which tethers one to one's own goodness. And anybody who spent longer than 10 minutes sitting on a cushion can appreciate the value of being tethered to your own goodness. Because there's stuff that comes up which is absolutely unpleasant to deal with. And if we don't have, like, a safety harness and a line that's connected to something that is solid and grounded and wholesome, heaven help us all, you know? Dealing with our own minds and the kind of mad stuff that goes on in our own minds, we need to be anchored to our own goodness to be able to tolerate this process of seeing what in fact is there. Another reason why generosity is so incredibly important is because it's an antidote both to critical mind, judgment, and to craving. Now, I don't know if these two things might have any relevance in your life. They do for me, and they do for most people that I have ever spoken to. You know. So, you've got a medicine which is particularly potent with three things that are very, very, very important in our lives. Okay? So, in fact, when we give, we are the primary beneficiary because of that. And it's really important to remember that. And this is called wise selfishness. You know, we take our own interests to heart and we make much of it. We know that we benefit by giving and so we give. So mundane right view has to do with karma, has to do with generosity, and has to do with the importance of looking after our parents. You know, so, you know, it's not uncommon that people have a challenging time with parents. But our life is the result of our parents. And even no matter how horrific it was, and some stories I have told, heard 
have just made me weep, just made me weep. Unspeakable stories. And yet, the life is there because of the parents. And so, we are still alive, which means that there was enough nourishment to make it this far. Yeah. Now, many of us have quite some healing to do. And I'm not saying this in order to sidestep a very important journey that everyone has to make. But just to recognize the fact that we are alive is the result of our parents, and not to forget that, and not to confuse that with the healing that we have to do. Yeah. So karma, generosity, and the significance of taking care and appreciating one's parents has to do with mundane, super right, right view. Super mundane right view has to do with, with a way of looking at things which is in fact liberating. So if we understand karma, if we're generous, if we take care of our parents, that's all good, but that isn't liberating. And so super mundane right view, again, comes back to the Four Noble Truths, understanding them and bringing them into the daily life, into one's own practice. And so the Four Noble Truths is not just a conceptual thing that one memorizes. It's the immediacy of bringing that reflective mind into the present moment. Where is their suffering right now? And now. And now. And now. And what is the cause? And, you know, when one trains like this, you know, it's like a sniffer dog. You know, your mind does not go out. It just goes right to the salami sandwich, you know. It's like, where exactly is that holding of wanting it to be something different? And you just get used to training your mind to do that, you know. Our society is totally about externalizing and blaming. You get no support for looking at an internal cause and taking responsibility. Okay, So it's totally against the stream of what's going on around us, which means that it takes the conviction to know that it's worthwhile in order to gather the energy to sustain it. Because most everybody you know will not support you to do that. So, we look at the Four Noble Truths, and we need to remember that there are four truths, not one. You know, And the reason why we look at the Four Noble Truths is so that we can realize the end of suffering, not so that we can get stuck and wallow in suffering. You know, and when you see somebody who is a a seasoned practitioner, usually they're very peaceful, you know, or they radiate. You know, I was just I was just telling my brother something. You know, when I would go to Michigan, somehow I'd go to Michigan and have these health crises and have to go to the emergency hospital. And then my friend Barbara, she's had the most phenomenal emergencies I have ever encountered. I mean, she's just, you know, regular medical crises. And for a while, there would be people in her community who would always make sure that they would go with her to the emergency hospital because she's a seasoned meditator. And seasoned meditators absolutely do not um, convey 
to the doctors and the hospital staff the magnitude of what they're experiencing. And so they can't look at their face and get a read of how much pain they're in because their relationship with pain is different or their relationship with distress is different, you know? So I remember my friend Barbara had gotten something weird happened at a gas station and her face got splashed with gasoline. So she went into the hospital and was calm as a cucumber and asked to have a shower and they wouldn't give it to her, you know? And, you know, she had all kinds of health problems that were a result of the fact that she had gasoline in her face and in her hair for, like, until she could go through whatever she could go through and get home and take a shower and wash her hair. Because she wasn't hysterical, they didn't think that there was something that they needed to pay attention to, you know? So, in our world, sometimes when you're good at meditation, it means that you need to have an interpreter take you to the emergency room. So that they can let the doctor's staff know that, no, this, in fact, actually really is important to take care of right now, even if she looks completely fine, (laughs) if they don't catch it themselves, yeah. But one of the things that I wanted to talk about, and I want to use the rest of the time for that, is is that, you know, we are living in a postmodern era, and this postmodern era is unique in contrast to what a traditional society was and what the traditional society was that the Buddha came into, you know? So, you know, there's many different qualities of a traditional society. And I don't name them or remember them as a way of devaluing them. But they're, they're about honor. They're about um, a, a loyalty. They're about allegiance with family and clan and whoever's in charge. Um, there's a sense of justice that's dependent on your position in society. I mean, there's all kinds of qualities that happen in a very traditional society that don't happen in a modern and a postmodern society. We really value transparency and authenticity, and we really value a sense that everybody has an equal right, rather than the fact that if dependent on your position in society and how much money in your bank is dependent on which laws that you have to pay attention to, you know? We, we like to be able to speak our truth and be heard, and we don't like to have people in authority use that authority in a way which cuts across our own understanding of what is correct. Okay, But also, because of the industrialization and because of a modern society and because of where we're at, we are living in a society where the level of isolation that people are navigating is rampant. The level of alienation that people are having to deal with is unimaginable. You know, we are leave, living in a, in a world of, of uh, you know, it's like meaningless, purposeless. There's no point. You know, what are we doing any of this for? You know, it just doesn't make any sense to most people most of the time. You know, our politics are not inspiring. Our political leaders are struggling against systems that are designed to make them fall rather than to support them. You know, we are up against stuff and pressures that that did not exist in a traditional context. And the number of people and the lack of wilderness places and the intensity of, you know, the electromagnetic fields all have an effect on this kind of system that is alienated from itself and from others, from the land, 
and from community. So my own understanding is that in a contemporary world now, resonant view, connected view, puts the community in the center of the Eightfold Path. That our connections with each other are paramount to being able to realize the truth. Now, I just had a a very, very profound email exchange with someone that I've known for 20 years or so, and he's both been a meditator, it's about the same number of years I have, about 30, and he's been involved in psychology probably for the last 15 years or so, and, and his own angle on psychology is depth psychology, and I share that um, appreciation with him, you know, that a lot of our own early patterning has an incredible influence on the behaviors and the values and the cycles that we see ourselves getting into again and again and again and again and again. And depth psychology understands the mechanism of that, but it also understands the importance of creating positive attachments as a way of healing the kind of negative imprinting that we have. Now, positive attachments in this language is somebody that you can trust and you can rely on. Somebody that you can tolerate getting in a fight with, that you're going to be in there through the, the long run so that you can get through the other side. You know, Somebody that you, you care enough about to want to be interested in their healing. Okay? Now, one of the things that is said again and again and again in the Buddhist teachings is the importance of non-attachment. Okay? But this non-attachment is totally different than this positive attachment. This non-attachment is the non-attachment that comes from letting go of desire that gets us into cycles of trouble. It's not the positive attachment that allows us to heal. And so it's my premise that in a postmodern society, when we're exploring resonant and connected view, we have got to appreciate the essential importance of community and building positive attachments within community in order to both support the psychological work that's needed in order to heal and to repair, but also to encourage and support letting go, which is different than just creating more desire. This Monday night group is a perfect example of that. It's a perfect example of that. It's a peer-led group. Each of you are showing up. None of you has tons and tons of experience. You're doing the best you can with what you've got. And you're here to support each other in allowing an environment to emerge that supports both creating friendships and letting go. I don't know if you heard the story, but Ananda was the Buddha's attendant for 25 years. No, 40 years. A long time. A long time. And the Buddha was a little bit like 
I mean, the Ananda was a little bit like the Buddha's fall guy, so occasionally he'd say these really dumb things and the Buddha would take him out, pick him up on it and stuff. So he comes to the Buddha and he's all excited, he's all excited. He says, you know, the Buddha, he says, I got it figured out, I got it figured out, I really know, I got the deal. You know, spiritual friends are half of the holy life. And the Buddha said, sorry, Ananda, don't say it like that. It's not like that. Spiritual friends are the whole of the holy life. You know, we can't do this alone. So here we are, our little sweet little Monday night group. When looking at the Buddha's teachings, what he was interested in was waking up. That was the only thing, really, that he was interested in. And everything that he taught and everything that he shared was to support that. So how is a group? Can this little group work or support each other or function? How have you been functioning to do just that? Support each other to wake up? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.